The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're going to get back to our study of Thessalonians this morning and uh, picking up in chapter 2. Uh, Paul brought his introduction to a conclusion in chapter 1. You know, he spent verses 3 through 10 um, going over some theology there, and then in in verses um, 11 and 12, he closes with a prayer. And then the new section begins now with chapter 2, and he gets into more eschatological themes, and the main body of the letter is from 2.1 to 3.16. Now, verses 1 through 12 contain truth about eschatology that you won't find anywhere else in Scripture. So this is, this is stuff that is, is new here and very different, as well as there's some familiar truth here. And what we're going to find, especially next week, is there are myriads of interpretations on these 12 verses. I mean, you can find any kind of thing almost that you want of you know, what they're trying to say. There's a lot of confusion about what Paul's talking about. And one of the main problems, I think, is, is the lack of exegetical historical research when it comes to the text of Scripture. I mean, we're not digging, we're not trying to find out what's going on here, we just make up something that sounds good and go on. And like I said, that's going to be especially true next week when we're talking about uh, the man of lawlessness and we're talking about the restrainer. Who is the restrainer? Who is restraining? Who is lawlessness? What is the apostasy? And those are questions you really can't answer unless you dig into some historical data. G.K. Beale explains it this way. He says, A significant shift in all levels of education has occurred over the past century. A slow but sure downgrading in the academic core content of curricula and quality in training of teachers. The Christian subculture has not been immune to this broader dumbing-down influence. Most seminary curricula have been affected so that there is a snowballing effect in which the church is influenced not only by the wider culture, but also by inadequately trained pastors. When there is less of a focus on the content of the Bible in seminary education and in the church, then the church becomes fertile ground for the seeds of false teaching, and we know there are numerous false teachings sprouting up in the churches today. And that's true. If we're not doing our digging, if we're not doing our research, if we're not educating ourselves, we're just kind of making stuff up as we go along or following somebody else. All right, with that in mind, let's get into our text. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 this morning. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Christ, and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us, to the effect, that the day of the Lord has come. Now, the word now is death in the Greek, and it marks a move to a new subject. It's a transition from the prayer of verses 11 and 12, now to the real heart of the letter, the doctrinal part in this matter of deals pretty much with the second coming. Now, Paul's talking to the Thessalonians about the second coming, and here he uses the word, the Greek word parousia. So let's talk for a minute about that. This word parousia is used 24 times in the New Testament. Six of them do not refer to Christ at all. They're just somebody is coming, okay? So we get rid of those six. The 18 times it's used of Christ's return in a second coming, 14 of those have a time reference with them. Either this generation, the last hour, it's near, at the door. Four of them have no time reference. But here's what I want you to get. There is no mention of the parousia in the New Testament in the distant future. None. Okay? There's not, well, this one's close. This one's a long ways away. There's no mention of a distant to them parousia. That's so important. It's always soon, near, quickly, this generation. Now, in order to explain away the nearness of the parousia, Many will turn to 2 Peter. You know, this, this is a famous verse for people who have a problem with preterism. 
Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And so they'll take that verse and say, see, time doesn't mean anything. That means nothing. You know, <laughs> really? Well, the context here is simply saying that God is a God who keeps His promises. That's the context. And God is not bound by time, but we are. And guess who the Bible's written to? Us, not God. God's not writing to Himself. I say quick, but I don't mean quick. I mean, time doesn't matter to me. No. God's writing to people, and He writes it in a language that they understand. And when He says soon, He means soon to the people who He's writing it to. Otherwise, he says soon, it would mean nothing, because it could be a day, it could be a thousand years. That's a big difference, right? <laughs> and though God, we ha- God is not bound by time, we have to understand that, but God can tell time, okay? Look what Balaam says back in Numbers 24, 17, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Seth. Here, Balaam the prophet is making a prediction about Christ's coming. And he says his coming is not now, and it's not near. The coming of Christ was not at hand. It was over 1,400 years away at this point, and 1,400 years is a long time. But if 1,400 years is a long time, could 2,000 plus years be soon somehow? Notice what he tells Daniel. Daniel 8, 26. The vision of the evening and the morning that has been told you is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So this chapter contains a prophecy that extends from 530 B.C. to about 165 B.C. and the death of Antiochus Epiphanes. So the time covered is about 365 years. So Daniel has said, seal it up, it's many days from now. So it's a long time off, because 365 years is a long time. But in Revelation, John was specifically told, do not seal up the words. So Daniel's told, seal the words. He's, Revelation, John so do not seal up the words of the book of this prophecy. Why? Because he says the time's near. So one is many days from now, which is 365 years, and one is near. So I don't know how the people would come up with this idea that time, that near could be somehow 2,000 plus years. It just, it just doesn't work when you understand that God does know how to tell time, Okay. So Daniel's years is a long time, you know, you can't make soon be near, be 2,000 years. Now seven of the uses of parousia in the New Testament are in the Thessalonian letters. Over a quarter of 1 Thessalonians and nearly half of 2 Thessalonians deal with problems and issues regarding the parousia of Christ. 2 Thessalonians develops the eschatological themes of 1 Thessalonians, and it's obvious that the Lord's return was prominent in Paul's mind as you read these letters. Now, the parousia involves three synchronous events, and we talk about this a lot, but what's interesting here, we see all three of these events in these two verses. The parousia, which is the coming of the Lord, the resurrection, which is our being gathered together to Him, and the judgment, which is the day of the Lord. So at the second coming of Christ, the dead are resurrected, the unbelievers were judged. Now he says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. Coming here, again, parousia. Parousia means presence. And the cultural background of the term was royal visits for which this word was regularly used. This is a theme that Paul had addressed repeatedly in 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians. Now, so he's talking about the coming of Christ. Commenting on this verse, it's interesting what the commentators do. You know, the futuristic commentators, they have to cover these verses. They don't like to, but they have to cover them, so they come up with some. Bob Utley writes this. He says, It must be remembered that the whole subject of the return of Christ 
is presented in the Bible in a dialectical tension. He's trying to confuse you here, okay? Listen to what he says. On one hand, the imminent return of the Lord is balanced with several events which must happen first. (laughs) It's imminent, but other things have to happen first. He goes on to say, one of these truths does not eliminate or contradict the other. Uh, Yeah, I think it does. Okay? I think it does contradict the other. Some examples of the predicted preliminary events would be the apostasy, the great tribulation, the gospel being preached to all nations, revealing of antichrist, salvation of the number of the Gentiles and Jews. So if all those have to happen, how is it imminent? They're they're eminent. Until these things happen, it's just... The the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines eminent as ready to take place. Happening soon. It really can't be ready to take place, though, because there's other things that have to go on. I mean, I just wonder, have we totally given up on logic? I mean, if I said we're... Us moving into our new building is eminent. Now, we haven't picked out land yet, or building plans, or we haven't started building, but it's eminent. Just a few things have to happen first. You'd be, that's ridiculous. Why would you say it's eminent? It could be a long, long time off, right? But that's, I mean, they, they say the coming's eminent, but it really is not. Now, the disciples, they connected the fall of the temple the end of the age, and the parousia. They connected them all together. So how could the destruction of the temple, which happens at the second coming, how could that be eminent today, as they say it is, when there is no temple to destroy? See, the, the future will say, well, the coming of Christ is eminent. It could happen any second. Well, when Christ comes, the temple's destroyed, right? Yeah. Okay, there is no temple. How's he going to destroy it when it doesn't exist? Look at Luke 21.20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, this is talking about the second coming, and Luke really narrows it down to a local thing. This is at a local place. This is Jerusalem. When you see these armies come around Jerusalem, then know its desolation has come near. It's about to go down. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So Christ is talking to real people in the first century who lived in Jerusalem, and he's telling them, when you see the armies, get out of the city, okay, because it's about to go down. That's referring to the second coming, as we see in verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming. Parousia in the cloud and with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing nigh. The coming of the Son of Man, the destruction of the temple, happen together. They're synchronous events. So then how is it eminent when there is no temple today to be destroyed? Doesn't the temple have to be rebuilt so it can be destroyed? There's a problem there. Because on the temple site right now is the Mosque of Omar on the Dome of the Rock. And that's the center of Muslim worship. It's the third holiest place in Islam after Mecca and Medina. So you think the Muslims are going to be too happy if they try to tear down their mosque? There's going to be a huge Muslim-Israelite holy war. And so this war has to take place. Israel has to win it. Then they have to tear down the mosque. Then they have to rebuild the temple, and then they can destroy it. So when they tell you it's eminent, you better say, well, let me, let's check a few things here first, okay? How are you destroying a temple that doesn't even exist? How are you going to do that? Don't tell me it's eminent. Considering the long time frame that such events require, it's just foolish when they say the coming of the Lord is eminent. But they want to divide up the coming. But still, even when they divide up the coming, the longest division there is, you know, the rapture of the church, that happens, and then seven years later, the coming, that's a lot to get done in seven years, okay? A lot to get done. And he talks about the coming of the Lord and our being gathered together to Him. This is a reference to the resurrection of 1 Thessalonians 4, 
13 through 18. Let's look at that text. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Okay, these are the dead people, not people taking a nap. They died. Don't be concerned. They're not going to miss out. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Yeshua died and rose again, even so through Yeshua, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left, until the coming of the Lord. Okay, so the alive, the ones that are left, they're going to be around when the Lord comes, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is the resurrection. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. In the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we always be with the Lord. Now, he talks about this, the Lord's coming with the sound of a trumpet of God. The sounding of the trumpets was a cultural way of announcing the approach of royalty in the east. We've got a royal visitor coming, they would blow the trumpets. It was also a sign of divine judgment. That fits here too. It was also a sign of a resurrection and the gathering of the elect by angels. We see that in Matthew 24. Now we see in Leviticus 23-24 and Numbers 10-2 that trumpets sounded an assembly of God sounded as to assemble the people of God. And here the trumpet of God is blown to gather together God's people. And then he says the dead in Christ will rise first. This is the resurrection. Now let me ask you a question. How do we know that this was a spiritual resurrection of bringing the saints into the presence of God, out of Sheol into the presence of God, and not a physical bodily resurrection from the grave? How do we know that? Because most futurists are going to say this is referring to a bodily resurrection. Well, we know that because time defines nature. We know that the resurrection happened in the first century, in AD 70, with the parousia, with the judgment. So we know it wasn't physical because bodies didn't come out of the graves at that time. All right? And then he talks about our being gathered together. Now, this is the Greek word episun agage, our gathering together, an assembly. It comes from sunagage, which is the word for synagogue, a gathering place. Epi just intensifies the place of our collecting together. So this is a reference to the event described in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 and in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24.31 he says, He'll send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they'll be gathered His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And He says, We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now the idea of being caught up with them, this is a picture of God's elect being brought into His presence into the Holy of Holies. Now, so so far we have seen, he's talking about the coming of Christ, he's talking about the gathering together. What's important here is the Greek construction focuses here on one event. It's not the coming of the Lord, Christ, and that's one, and then our gathering together, that's two. This is one event. There's a single definite article, and it ties them together. Hogg and Vine write this, The Greek has one article with both nouns indicating that the coming and our gathering to him are complementary elements of one event. Now, despite this, David Guzik, who must not understand the Greek too well, says this, The wording here implies a difference between the coming, of our ga- the coming and our gathering. This strongly suggests there are essentially two comings of Jesus. Now, by two comings, he means rapture and then seven years later, okay? He goes on to say, one coming for his church, as described clearly in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18, and the other coming is with the church to judge a rebellious world. Now, G.K. Beale refutes this by saying, those who hold to the pre-tribulation rapture say that the coming, parousia, of Christ in verse 1 refers to pre-tribulation rapture, but the same word in verse 8 refers to a second coming after the tribulation. The burden of proof is on them to explain why Paul, without explanation, 
would use the same word in the same context to refer to two separate events. There are not two separate events, okay? They just made that stuff up, all right? So then Paul says, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Quickly here, takaos, it means quickly, soon, hastily. It implies here that Paul's surprised. He says, you know, I just left you guys. I wasn't there that long ago. We talked about all this stuff, and I'm just surprised you're moving away from what I taught you already. How quick can you do that? You're just moving on to something else that quick? And he says, you're shaken in mind. This is saluo, and it means to agitate, to shake, to unsettle. It's a present passive infinitive which speaks of a continuing occurrence by an outside agent. Something outside of them was causing them to be agitated. This word was used of moving away from something like a ship which was suddenly torn away from its moors by strong winds or heavy waves. And Paul uses the aorist tense with the verb shaken, but then changes to the present tense with the verb alarmed. They're alarmed. They're just, right now, they're, they've been, their mind has been shaken and they're totally alarmed about what's going on. In Psalm 16, 7 and 8 in the Septuagint, it states that David would not be shaken. The same Greek word here. And the reason he wouldn't be shaken, it said, because he constantly listened to and heeded the word of God. If they had just paid attention to Paul, understood what Paul was saying, they're not going to be agitated. They're not going to be all shaken up about what they're being taught. He says, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter. Now, each claim here is preceded by the Greek meta, which suggests that those who were bothering the church with the false information were making three distinct claims as to the source of the claim. The first term is by a spirit. This is pneuma. It's used of a prophetic message. In other words, someone's saying, I got a prophecy and this is what's going to happen. This word uh, pneuma is used in 1 John and it's related to the Antichrist. And, or a spoken word. This is the word logos. It just means a variety of contexts. It can mean a message is preached, a teach, a discourse. It re- this could refer to somebody's interpretation. Well, Paul said this and here's what it really means. You know, they're trying to throw them off track. It may have just been someone's opinion. Then he says, or a letter. Apparently, someone had forged a letter claiming it was from Paul, but it was in direct contradiction to what he had taught them. So that's why he's saying, I'm just, I'm shocked how you so quickly moved away from what I taught you. Now, because of this, Paul closes this letter. Oh, he says this letter is seemingly from us. In other words, someone's claiming it's me. It's not me. All right. And so to correct this, Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, 3, uh, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine that I, that I write. In other words, Paul used an amanuensis, and when he got to the end of the letter, he said, take the pen himself. He talks about his eyes being bad, and he put a closing on there himself so they know, okay, this is Paul's signature, this has come from Paul Somebody else didn't make this up. We know Paul wrote it, all right? So what was this false teaching that was coming to them from all these different forms that was rocking the Thessalonians? What was happening that was shaking them up so bad? Well, it was this. He said, to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. Now, has come here is anistemi, and it means has come. Okay, that's exactly what it means. Now, some commentators go through all kinds of hoops and cartwheels trying to make it mean something else. It cannot. It doesn't. It simply means they believe it had arrived. Therefore, it was a present reality to them. They were in the day of the Lord. It had arrived, and they're in it. Now, Morris, Henry Morris, writes this. The verb does not really mean to be at hand, but rather to be present. And that's what everybody argues. Well, the verb here, it just means that the day of Christ is imminent. It's coming soon. No, that's not what it means at all. The Greek commentator, Dean Alford, translates this passage to the effect that the day of the Lord is present, not is at hand. The verb used here occurs six times in the New Testament and always in the sense of present tense. In two of those places, Romans 8, 38, and 1 Corinthians 3, 22, 
The things present are distinguished expressly from the things to come. So the Thessalonians were not afraid that the day of the Lord was coming. They were afraid they were in it. Now, Gingrich Danker writes, Some have sought to take is present to mean is eminent. But the consistent meaning of the Greek in esteme, in past tense, is be present, have come. All right, so this is especially true of the perfect tense here. Paul is not denying the eminency of the day of the Lord. He's denying it is present with them right now. Beale writes this, It is appropriate to speak of the end times as having been inaugurated but not consummated, but for Paul, the actual phrase, the day of the Lord, always refers to the consummation of the latter days. I'm surprised that Beale said that, but he did. Okay, he goes on to say, 2 Thessalonians 2.8 suggests that the day of the Lord is equivalent to Christ's final coming. That's exactly right. Since Christ's parousia here occurs right at the heels of the revelation of the lawless one, which is best understood as an end time event. So he sees this, but yet he's still a futurist. Now, what is the traditional view of the day of the Lord? I mean, if you were to ask the average Christian, oh, the day of the Lord, what is it? Well, maybe not. You couldn't ask the average Christian because they were like, I don't know, what is the day of the Lord? If you ask someone who's slightly knowledgeable, okay, and they did their, they did their Bible reading occasionally, they might be somewhat familiar with the day of the Lord. And their answer would probably, they want to take you to 2 Peter. All right, because 2 Peter talks about the day of the Lord, and this is how I think your average person views it. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, most Christians are going to say this is what? This is the end of the world. I mean, just read it. Everything's melting, burning, exploding. You know, they'll maybe nuclear explosions. I don't know. They just, the whole earth is going to be blown up. That's what they think. It's the destruction of the physical heavens and the earth, and this is going to happen in our future. But here's the thing. If it's referring to the end of the world, and the heaven and earth have not yet passed away, because it's all going to be burned up, shouldn't the Mosaic Law still be in effect? Remember what Yeshua said in Matthew 5? He said, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Now, if the passing away of the heaven and the earth is the end of the world, then the law should still be in effect, because the world hasn't passed away, right? So it should be in effect. That means all 613 commands in the Torah must be followed until the world ends. Now, not by us, because we're Gentiles. Those laws were never meant for us. We're never under the Torah. But the Jews were still under. This means the Jews should be doing this today. Are the Jews following these laws today? Are they even coming close to following Torah? But the Lord said, listen, nothing's going to pass away until heaven and earth pass away. You know when the Jews quit following Torah? A.D. 70. Why'd they quit? Because the temple was destroyed. And they've never sacrificed. There's no priesthood. They've never sacrificed since. So if, they, if the Lord said, it's all going to be in effect until heaven and earth pass away, and it stopped at A.D. 70, maybe A.D. 70 was the passing away of heaven and earth. Can we put those things together, you think? Because they're not sacrificing anymore. They're not even, they still say they're practicing Judaism, but it's not biblical Judaism. They made stuff up. You can't have Judaism without sacrifice. You can't, you can't do the Sabbath. You can't worship on the Sabbath without sacrifice. You can't keep any of the feasts without sacrifice. You've got to kill 70 bulls 
on the Feast of Tabernacles. Oh, Peter would be all over the Jews, wouldn't they? I mean, it'd be a big mess. They haven't sacrificed an animal since AD 70 because God said it's done. And just to make it clear for you people, you don't have a temple, you don't have a priesthood, you got nothing, it's over. It passed away. Get that. But most people today would say, no, it hasn't, because the earth is still here, it's not burned up. He said clearly everything's going to burn. You know, and I think that modern Christians come up with the end of the world scenario because they're so unfamiliar with their Bible. Especially the first three quarters of their Bible, which people want to call the Old Testament. And because it's called old, they say, we don't really need that. It's old, right? Well, you've got to understand it because the Bible is one book, and you can't just start at the last quarter of the book and think you're going to understand anything that's going on without the language. Because all the language that Yeshua and the writers of the New Testament use comes from the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's unfortunate that those, like I said, are called old. The old covenant passed away, is replaced by the new. But the first three quarters of our Bible are not old in the term of, in the sense of we don't need them. All right? They haven't been replaced. It teaches us so much. And again, the language that the New Testament writers use comes out of that. And if you're going to understand the New Testament, you better get a handle on the first three quarters of the Bible. You just better, because if you don't, you're just going to start making stuff up when you read it. Well, it says here the stars are going to follow the sky. I know what that means. Stars, you know, they're, they're suns that are billions and billions of years away, and they're going to fall out of the sky. You know, I mean, today science says, well, that, the light from that star came two billion years ago. It could already be burned out. How's it going to fall, and how are we going to know it if, it takes, if it's that far away? That's all nonsense, by the way. Paul said in Acts 26, 22, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both the small and the great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. What's Paul saying here? He's saying everything I'm telling you comes from the Old Testament. The, the Torah, the Tanakh, it's all in there. The, he's preaching from the Hebrew Scriptures. And therefore, if you want to understand Paul, if you want to understand any New Testament writer, you've got to understand that first three quarters of the Bible. Get familiar with the language. Because if you're not familiar with apocalyptic language, you're not going to understand what Peter is saying. And if you approach the New Testament's apocalyptic language without recognizing for what it is and not knowing how to deal with its tone, its images, its symbols, you're for sure going to go astray. Now think with me on this. If the Thessalonians thought the day of the Lord was the end of the world, okay, this is how most people think of it, this is the day of the Lord, the destruction of the physical heavens and earth, how could they have thought it already happened? I mean, does that make any sense at all? Any futurist will tell you, yeah, the day of the Lord, that's a total destruction. Okay, then why are they thinking it happened? I mean, they're a little confused, I guess, because, you know? Now, let me just say this here. I know the earth's not a globe. You know I know the earth's not a globe. It's flat with the dome over it, okay? Get over it if you don't. You just need to get right and understand that's the truth, okay? Here's the problem. You can't find a picture of a flat earth burning. <laughs> because it doesn't burn, and so it doesn't need to be there. This is futuristic, whatever, burning up stuff that, you know, all right, whatever. <laughs> I, I did look for a flat earth burning up, okay? But I don't do graphics, so I, you know, I couldn't make one. But you get the point. This is what people think the day of the Lord is. Everything dies. Everything's gone. Oh, just by the way, do you know what the uh, ASL, American Sign Language, sign is for Earth? It's this. <laughs> it is. Some people just know things. <laughs> they're, they're deaf. They're not blind. And so they, 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 they understand what's... All right, how did I get on this subject? Let's... <laughs> All right, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. This shatters the paradigm 
that views the second coming as a fire destruction of the whole earth. you got to see that. Because the Thessalonians believed the modern view that the second coming was just going to involve everything burning up, there's no way they'd be deceived. Why wouldn't Paul just wrote back and say, stupid people, look out the window. You see the earth? You see the skies melted? You see all these things? You know, do you, Is everything gone? Why are you idiots even thinking this? The Lord obviously hasn't come, but they thought it already happened. So they must have viewed the nature of the second coming differently than most folks view it today. They must have viewed it as a spiritual event. They thought it happened, but they see no physical evidence of it. And throughout the scriptures, we see over and over that time defines nature. Okay? For example, Matthew 12, 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, this is a first-class conditional sentence assumed to be true by the author for literary purposes. Yeshua asserted that his exorcisms demonstrated that his messianic power proved the arrival of the new age of the Spirit. The literal standard version puts it this way, then the kingdom of God has already come to you. Now, if the kingdom of God had come in the first century, then I think it should be clear that the nature of the kingdom was spiritual. Again, time defines nature. Yeshua said the kingdom has come. That's time. So the nature of the kingdom must be spiritual. I think that Yeshua tried to stress this point by saying that the kingdom of God did not come with observation in Luke 17, 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The spiritual nature of the kingdom is easy to understand if you see that the kingdom is the church. Because the kingdom and the church are synonymous. The two words are used as, as synonyms in Matthew 16, 18 through 19. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. The word receiving here is the Greek word paralambano, and it's in the present tense showing progression. The kingdom was being brought into its fullness during the first century by progression. Now, if the kingdom of God had come in the first century, then again, it should be clear that the nature of the kingdom was spiritual. Time defines nature. Yeshua said the kingdom has come, that's time. So the nature of the kingdom must be spiritual. The nature of the kingdom that Christ preached was entirely contrary to what the Jews anticipated. They're looking for a Messiah who is a military leader to come and overthrow Rome to free them from Rome. They anticipated a complete uprising and overthrowing of Rome. So that's why when the Lord said, it's already here, they're like, no, nah, we don't want that. We don't want that. And it's the same today. And you say, the Lord already came. Christians today say, no, we don't want that. We want a new earth. Okay, we want everything blowing up and we want something new. Acts 24, 15. Having hope toward God, which they themselves also wait for, that there is about to be a rising again of the dead, both of the righteous and unrighteous. Now, I posted this in Young's here because you want to get the tenses here right. Young's does it. The words there is about to be the Greek word mellow. And whenever the verb in the present active indicative is combined with the infinitive, it's consistently translated about to be. So Paul's telling the first century audience here, there's about to be a resurrection. Now again, we already talked about time. He's not saying in thousands of years there'll be a resurrection. He says it's about to be. And if we're going to understand what Paul is talking about, we need to understand audience relevance because Paul is not talking to us here. He's talking to Felix. He's talking to Ananias, Tertullius, and the elders in the first century. And he tells them, guys, there's about to be a rising again from the dead. So if the timing of the resurrection is soon, what's that tell us about the nature of the resurrection? 
It's spiritual. Time defines nature. It's not a physical bodily resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Again, talking about the resurrection. The resurrection was to happen at the parousia, and the parousia was to happen soon in the first century. Then the resurrection was to happen soon. As Paul said, it was about to happen. Now when we see from the teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus, we can see several things about the resurrection beliefs of the early Christians. Uh, preterism has been called the Hymenaean heresy, okay, because they're saying we, we're like these guys here. 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them, Hymenaeus, Hymenaeus <laughs> and Philetus have swerved from the truth. Well, these guys, they got off the track here. They're off the path. They swerved. Why? What were they doing wrong? Saying the resurrection has already happened. See, we say that. So they say, oh, see, you guys are swerving from the truth too. They don't understand that this was written 2,000 years ago, okay? And again, there's a little difference in time here. And they're upsetting the faith of some. Now listen, again, these early Christians must have believed that the resurrection would not be a physical bodily resurrection out of the grave. Or how are they saying this? That would be subject to confirmation. That would be, you know, we got physical evidence. Come here, look at this grave. It's, nobody's in there anymore. If the early Christians believed the resurrection would involve the physical bodies coming out of the grave, as is taught today, then Hymenaeus and Philetus could never have convinced anybody that it already happened. They just say, you idiots, no, that's not true. Well, take us to the grave. Show us that it's happening. They also must have believed that after the resurrection, life would go on with no material changes. Now, futurists don't believe that today because the resurrection happens at every, the end of the world. They didn't believe that they would be on a renovated planet Earth as a consequence of the resurrection. Otherwise, the teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus would have been impossible. Nobody would have paid any attention to them. The reason that they're teaching that the resurrection had already happened, the reason it was overthrowing the faith of some, was because when they were teaching it, it postulated a consummation of the spiritual kingdom while the earthly temple in Jerusalem still stood. And see, that's a mixture of law and grace. This destroyed the faith of some by making the works of law part of the new covenant. They said, well, the temple's still standing. Judgment hasn't happened. How can the resurrection have taken place? But see, we're saying it after the temple has been destroyed. And that's all past. We're 2,000 years on the other side of it. In Matthew 24, 34, the Lord said, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Yeshua said the parousia was going to happen in that generation, the generation that he was speaking to. So if the parousia happened in the first century, it must not have been a physical bodily coming of Christ. It must have been a spiritual event. Now when I say it's spiritual, I don't mean that it wasn't real. There was a real coming in judgment. I mean, you could see the coming of Christ if you understood that that Roman army Christ was in that Roman army destroying Jerusalem. If you understood that, then you say, well, that's pretty literal. If you're a Jew in Jerusalem, that's a pretty literal coming. But there's no physical body riding on a cloud that they see coming in. All right? 1 Thessalonians 4.15 says, For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he's saying, he's connecting it, he's talking to those people, and he's saying, we're going to be alive at this coming. There'll be some people that will be alive. Uh, you just can't get 2,000 years out of that, unless you believe there's some 2,000-year-old Thessalonians out there waiting for this. And I've heard people tell me they believe that. Seriously, no. I mean, listen. Years ago, we had a couple guys come down from Quantico, to check out what we were teaching, okay, because they had a problem with it, you know, with this preterist thing. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, you got three options, okay? The Lord was lying, okay? He came in the first century, or there's still some 2,000 years, and they said, we think there's some 2,000 years. And I'm like, they, these guys taught logic at Quantico. Uh, that should scare you to death about our military, okay? This is their logic. There's some two. They on, and I said, guys, seriously? I mean, 
I think they were just backed in a corner and they didn't want to admit I was right, so they had to come up with something. So they, we believe there's some 2,000 years. Where are these people? Where are these Thessalonians still hanging out waiting for the Lord to come back? They're getting tired, I think. Uh, so some, is gonna, some of them are going to still be alive, all right? When this physical body coming in the crowd, cloud. Revelation 17.1 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on the many waters. This is the wrath of God being poured out on Jerusalem in AD 70. We are told in the first three verses of the book of Revelation, in the last 16 verses, that everything prophesied in the book was to happen soon to the first century readers. The time of the judgment was soon. The nature of the judgment was spiritual. And again, I'm not saying it wasn't literal, it wasn't physical, because if you're a Jew, it's very physical. But you're a Thessalonian, this judgment is affecting them. Okay, even though they're 900 miles away, the judgment on Jerusalem would affect them because it was a spiritual judgment. It was a judgment of old covenant Judaism. It was the removal of the old heaven and the earth. He talks about the day of the Lord has come. This is what they're believing. The day of the Lord's already come. Now, there's a major textual variant in this verse that says day of Christ instead of day of the Lord. It's not a big deal, but there's better older manuscript evidence for day of the Lord, and because Paul argues that they cannot be in the day of the Lord, I think the day of the Lord's a better translation than the day of Christ. Um, <clears throat> now, the day of the Lord is an event that happens between the two ages, the Old Covenant age and the New Covenant age. Zechariah 14 teaches us that the day of the Lord and the destruction of Jerusalem are connected. So the destruction of Jerusalem, which was the day of the Lord, marked the end of the age, which was the Jewish age and the beginning of the new age, the Christian age of the new covenant. To put it simply, the day of the Lord is a time of judgment on Israel. It is the end of the old covenant age. Now, the various references to day of the Lord in the Tanakh, they refer to different nations. It, it, it all depends on who the judgment is being pronounced against. That's true in the Tanakh, okay? But, all references in the New Testament, and I believe there's only four of them, all of them are in reference to AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem at that time. The phrase, the day of the Lord, therefore, in 2 Thessalonians 2, refers to God's judgment on the apostate Jewish nation at the end of the age when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman armies. This was the end of the Old Covenant. This was the consummation of the New Covenant. He says, I don't want you to be quickly shaken. In mind, I don't want you to be alarmed. I don't want you to be, what, whether it be from a spirit or a word or a letter, that the day of the Lord had come. Now, let me ask you something. Why would the teaching that the day of the Lord had already come upset the Thessalonians so bad? Like I said, it's 900 miles away. They understood Jerusalem was going to be destroyed by the Romans. Why, is it, why are they upset to think it happened? I think they were upset because Paul made them some promises about what was going to happen when that did happen, didn't he? 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Those were the Jewish persecutors afflicting them because they were Christians. And watch, he says, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So when was this relief to come to them? He says, when the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So if the day of the Lord had come, they should have had relief from their persecutors. But they didn't see that. So they're like, hey, wait a minute. How can this be? How can the day of the Lord, again, and if they're thinking the way people are thinking today, they're not confused at all. But obviously they're not. They think it's a more spiritual event, event that's happening in Jerusalem that will affect them spiritually because the old covenant's ending. It's still future for them. And Paul tells him, look, guys, calm down because there's some things that need to happen first. In other words, Paul's telling them it's not eminent, okay? Because in verse 3, he says this, Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless something has to come first. The rebellion comes, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So Paul says, listen, guys, 
Some events have to happen. They haven't happened yet. When those happen, then you know it's imminent. Then you know it's going to come quickly. And we'll look, begin looking at verse 3 down through 12 next week. But here's what I want you to think about this week. What is the rebellion that had to happen? What is that rebellion? Who is the man of lawlessness that's going to be revealed? And who is the restrainer that is restraining the man of lawlessness? That's all in this text. Only in this text. And you will never figure out the answer to this unless you have a copy of Josephus' War of the Jews. That's the only chance you're going to have to understand this, okay? So if someone is trying to explain this to you and they're not quoting Josephus telling you they're off base, okay? Because this is not something you're going to figure out on your own. It's not something you're going to find in Scripture. You're going to have to dig into some historical references to figure out what's going on. And we'll do that next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, it seems clear to us that you said you were going to come in the first century. You told all the churches you were coming in the first century. Your coming would be a judgment coming on Jerusalem. You would raise the dead. You would bring those old covenant saints into your presence at that time. But so many resist this. So many fight against it, Lord. Help us to just be knowledgeable of the Scriptures. Help us to know what it is we believe in and why we believe it so we can defend ourselves, so we can encourage others. Lord, I think preterism is such a positive eschatology, Lord. We're not looking for doom and gloom. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Thank you that we're in the kingdom now. We're reigning with you as kings. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Amen. Okay, questions, comments. Lori, you kind of threw me off this morning. You're in the wrong place. You're on the wrong side. I'm like, whoa, I'm all confused. <laughs> Did I end too quick? No one was ready with questions? I got nothing so far, so we can wrap this up. Mentioned this before, but the Young's literal translation um, uses the word "reign" for kingdom. Right. So, what is that word mean in the Greek? Well, that's that's <laughs> the idea. The kingdom is the reign of Christ. You know, it's not a geographical, it's not a physical thing, and that's what they were looking for. They were strictly looking for a physical kingdom. I mean, they'd always had a physical kingdom. That's what they thought it would be. You know, we got to defeat Rome. It's the reign of Christ, and the reign of Christ is not, you know... So all those translations, you know, why do they use the word? Well, you know, again, it, it depends on how that word, well, how people perceive that word, you know. I think, I think you, you know, Young's can be very helpful there when you understand reign. Because we think of a kingdom as a physical, spatial place, and that's not the reference there. But that's just, I guess, how we're using language, and we can get confused there. Yes, Amy. Um, we saw that movie last night, Sound of Freedom. And I, on the way home, I was saying to Mike, I can understand why people want the world to end, and they can't right. understand why God would allow this evil forever and ever to continue. You know? So I see that they would think God should end it right. and not allow this to continue. I agree. I agree 100%. I think that that's one of the big arguments. Well, the world's evil. God's got to fix this. You know, how, how long has the world been evil? I think it's since God created Adam and Eve. <laughs> the whole time. So is it going to end anytime soon? People think it will. I don't, you know, again, I, I view more of this earth as a boot camp where we're learning and growing and, you know, walking with Christ. And then we graduate and move into the heavenly realm. So, you know, but yeah, I agree. When you see stuff like that, it does... It makes me angry. It doesn't make me question why does God do this. It makes me say, do I have enough ammunition to fix this problem? You know, I mean, you, that's you just want to deal with this stuff. The problem, yeah, when your fellow believers are sitting around waiting to be rescued, so they don't right. want to deal with it. It makes it really hard to deal with it. Right, <laughs> right. We're just, you know, well, that's you know, that's the dispensational motto: is why polish brass on a sinking ship? Don't do anything. Mm -hmm. 
And that's why Christians pulled out of everything. We pulled out of government. We pulled out of art. We pulled out of everything because we're ready to get out of here. You know, beat me up, Scotty. I'm not getting involved in that. Or if we understood we're here, this is ours. Let's let's do what we can do to make an influence to affect it somehow or another. You know, and there's a lot of different ways we can, but we have to get involved. Norm says, those of us that are left isn't correct. It is those of us that remain, as in remain in me. Okay, I'm not exactly tracking with you there, Norm, but I believe you. I don't know who this is, but the account of Matthew 27, 51-54 seems to be very physical. How many is many? Yes, I, I think the account in Matthew 27 was physical, but that was not the resurrection of the dead. That wasn't, you know, that wasn't the moving of people into the presence of God at that time. I don't, I don't know how many, many is. <laughs> I guess it's how many you want it to be. I'm not really sure what that's a reference to either. Not quite the first cloud coming of great judgment happens in Noah's day. There can't be rain that covers the earth without voluminous angry clouds. Well, I don't know that I agree with you on that. Because if the earth is flat with a dome over it and the waters above, God opened the windows of heaven and boosh, you got a flood. <clears throat> I, you know, I know people, that bothers people. It's the, what the Bible says. Okay? So, huh? Yeah. Yeah, if. I mean, but the Bible talks about the windows of heaven. And it talks about the waters above. And it you know, talks about all that stuff. So, yeah, God just said, open the window. We didn't need clouds for that. <laughs> That's the literal translation. Yeah, that is the literal translation. But that would, be, that would be scary, wouldn't it? And you need to take Revelation literally, too. Do what? And they say you need to take Revelation. Right, I know. It also says the springs of the earth. Right, right. The yep. Well, there's water beneath. There's water above. Well, they take apocalyptic language for literal and didactic language for whatever. Well, that, that's the problem. They, you know, they really turn language on its head. You know, because they take the time statements, they won't take them literally. You know, and here's the thing. So many time statements. It's like God thought, trying to think of every word he could think of to use near, soon, shortly, this generation, some of you standing here. How do you twist all that, you know? How do you twist all that? And then they say, well, that doesn't mean that. But then they take the apocalyptic language and say, oh, this means this is real. This is going to be a beast with ten heads and all these horns. And he's going to do all this. And I'm like, wow. You know, what, what, you got it turned upside down. You know, that's apocalyptic. The time statements are didactic. They're literal. He's trying to communicate something to us that's going to happen soon. The liberals see this. The liberals mock Christianity because they say the Lord said he was going to come back in the first century and he didn't do it. You guys, it's a joke. And they're right. If he didn't come back soon, he's a false teacher. So, but yet, futurism doesn't seem to have a problem with that. Well, you know? if it happened, they would have told us. You know? <laughs> Will that tell us we evolved from nothing? What I told us, he came. <laughs> yeah. Well, they have all their grass and charts. Do what? They have all their graphs and charts. Yeah, that's true. They got the, you know, and again, dispensationalism has its way of dealing with it. And I kind of, I kind of like the way dispensationalism deals with it, you know, because this, the critics were saying, you Christians are wrong. The Lord said he's coming soon. He didn't come. And dispensationalism said, wait, we're in a timeout now. See, God blew the whistle. Whoop, timeout. Stop, stop. I'm going to stop with Israel. I'm going to go deal with the church. I'll come back to you later. So when God comes back, when the whistle blows, then the clock starts going again. I mean, it's a it's an explanation, okay? And it's like, oh yeah, that's why he didn't come soon because the clock stopped way back then, and so it'll still be soon when the clock starts because it hasn't moved, you know? Yeah, it's 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 uh, I like it. I mean, it's a, it's a thoughtful and ingenious. It's like we got to explain this somehow. Don't just believe what it says. You know, because we have this view of the nature locked in. It's going to be physical. The planet's going to be renovated. Everything's going to blow up. We're going to see this five-foot Jewish man floating in on a white puffy cloud. All this is going to happen. So we know that didn't happen. So therefore, it's not happened yet. 
Well, it's funny too because in Second Peter, Peter writes that as a present reality, talking about the heavens being on fire, right? And all that, he, all of that is present tense. You know, there there are some future things, some future tenses in there for the completion, but the heavens being on fire. You know, he writes as a present reality back then, not something he's looking forward to. But again, you know, that language, if you just take it at face value and ignore where it comes from, it sounds like the end of the world. Right. Yeah. Okay? But if you read Isaiah 13, that sounds like the end of the world. <laughs> but not the end of our world, the end of their world. So which is it? You know, and again, you just get familiar with Scripture and you understand the language. It really helps a lot. All right, let's get the worship team down here and let's close with a song. All right, I got a question from Doug. He says, were any Christians physically resurrected at AD 70? I don't think so. Okay, I don't think people were physically resurrected. I think the resurrection, you know, we were brought, we were given immortality. The living were given immortality. The dead were taken into the presence, of, out of the grave, into the presence of God. That was what resurrection was. It wasn't about physically, I, I don't think, I don't believe in a physical rapture. I don't think that happened. That's my opinion. Others do. Okay? So when you when you get to heaven, you can take a survey. Any of you guys get physically raptured in 8070? Find out maybe some of them did. Then you'll know. <laughs>